Section 16 of Astounding Stories of Super Science, September 1930. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Barry Eads. Marooned Under the Sea by Paul Ernst. Part 4. There were, and that they were in distress was evident. The layers on the floor were weaving and shifting constantly as the bottom creatures struggled feebly to rise to the top of the mass and be relieved of the weight of their brothers. Also they were famished. One of the blood-red gigantic worms floated near the cave entrance. Like lightning the nearest Quabos darted after it. In a moment the prey was torn to bits by the ravenous monsters. The other side of the story was immediately portrayed to us. With the emerging of the reckless Quabos, a sea-serpent appeared from above and snapped up three of their number. Evidently the huge serpent considered them succulent tidbits, and made it its business to wait near the cave and avail itself of just such rash chance-taking as this. While we watched the nightmare scene, a quabo disengaged itself from the parent mass and floated upward into the clear, giving us a chance to see more distinctly what the creatures looked like. There was a black, shiny head as large as a sugar-barrel. In this were eyes the size of dinner-plates, and gleaming with a cold, hellish intelligence. Four long, twining tentacles were attached directly to the head. Dotted along these were rudimentary sucker-discs, that had evidently become atrophied by the soft living of thousands of the creature's ancestors. As though emerging from the pool into which we were gazing, the monster darted viciously at us. At once it disappeared. The fish-servant through whose eyes we were seeing all this had evidently retreated from the approach, although, protected by its spines, it could not have been in actual danger. "'How dost thou know of the tunneling?' I asked Aga. "'Thy fishmen cannot be present there, in the rear of the tunnel, to report.' "'My artisans have knowledge of each forward move,' she answered. "'I will show thee.' We walked back to the palace and descended to a smooth-lined vault. There we saw a great stone shaft, sunk down into the rock of the floor. On this was a delicate vibration recording instrument of some sort, with a needle that quivered rhythmically over several degrees of an arc. This tells of each move of the quabos, said Aga. It also tells us where they will break through the city wall. How near to us are they, Kilor? she asked an attendant who was studying the dial, and who had bowed respectfully to Aga and myself as we approached. They will break into the city in four rixes at the present rate of advance, Your Majesty. Four rixes. In a little over sixteen days, as we count time, the city of Zyobor would be delivered into the hands, or rather tentacles, of the slimy, starving demons that huddled in the cavern outside. Somberly we followed Aga back to her apartment. As thou seest, she murmured, there is nothing to be done. We can only resign ourselves to the fate that nears us and enjoy as much as may be the few remaining rixes. She glanced at me. The professor's dry, cool voice cut across our wordless, engrossed communion. I don't think we'll give up quite as easily as all that. We can at least try to outwit our enemies. If it does nothing else for us, the effort can serve to distract our minds. He drew from his pocket a sheet of parchment and the stub of his last remaining pencil. His fingers busied themselves apparently idly in the tracing of geometric lines. Looking ahead to the exact details of our destruction, he mused coolly, we see that our most direct and ominous enemy is the sea itself. When the city is flooded, we drown, and later the Quabos can enter at will. 
He drew a few more lines and marked a cross at a point in the outer rim of the diagram. What will happen? The Quabos force through the last shell of the city wall. The water from their tunnel floods into Zyobor. But, and mark me well, only the water from the tunnel. The outer end, remember, is blocked off in their pressure-reducing process. The vast body of the sea itself cannot immediately be let in here, because the Quibos must take as long a time to reaccustom themselves to its pressure as they did to work out of it. He spread the parchment sheet before us. Is this a roughly accurate plan of the city? he asked Aga. She inclined her lovely head. And this, indicating the cross, is the spot where the Quibos will break in? Again she nodded, shuddering. Then tell me what you think of this, said the professor. And he proceeded to sketch out a plan so simple, and yet so seemingly efficient, that the rest of us gazed at him with wordless admiration. My friend, my friend, whispered Aga at last, thou hast saved us. Thou art the guardian hero of Zyobor. Not too fast, your highness, interrupted the professor with his frosty smile. I shall be much surprised if this little scheme actually saves the city. We may find the rocks so thick there that our task is hopeless, though I imagine the Quabos picked a thin section for help in their own plans. A vague look came into his eyes. I must certainly get my hands on one of these monsters. Superhumanly intelligent fish. Marvelous. Akin to the octopus, perhaps. He wandered off, changed from the resourceful schemer to the dreamy man of scientific abstractions. The queen gazed after him with wonder in her eyes. A great man, she murmured. But is he a little mad? No, only a little absent-minded, I replied. Then, come on, Stanley, we'll round up every able-bodied citizen in Zyobor and get to work. I suppose they have some kind of rock-drilling machinery here. They had, and they strangely resembled our own rock-drills, revolving metal shafts, driven by gas turbines, tipped with fragments of the same crystal that glittered so profusely in the palace walls another proof that practically every basic, badly needed tool that had been invented again and again, in all lands and times, as the necessity for it arose. With hundreds of the powerful men of Zyobor working as closely together as they could, without cramping each other's movements, and with the whole city resounding to the roar of the machinery, we labored at the defense that might possibly check the advance of the hideous Quabos. And with every breath we drew, waking or sleeping, we realized that the cold-blooded, inhuman invaders had crept a fraction of an inch closer in their tunneling. The Quabos against Zyobets. Fish against man. Two diametrically opposed species of life in a struggle to the death. Which of us would survive? The hour of the struggle approached. Every soul in Zyobor moved in a daze, with strained face and fear-haunted eyes. Their proficiency in mental telepathy was a curse to them now. Every one carried constantly, transmitted from the brains of the servant-fish outposts, a thought-picture of that outer cavern in the murky depths of which wreathed the thousands of crowding Quabos. Each mind in Zyobor was in continual torment. Spared that trouble, at least, Stanley and the professor and I walked down to the fortification we had so hastily contrived. It was finished, and none too soon. The vibration indicator in the palace vault told us that only two feet of rock separated us from the burrowing monsters. The professor's scheme had been to cut a long slot down through the rock floor of the city to the roof of the vast, mysterious body of water below. This slot was placed directly in front of the spot in the city wall where the Quabos were about to emerge. As they forced through the last shell of rock, 
the deluge of water, instead of drowning the city, was supposed to drain down the oblong vent. Any Quabos that were too near the tunnel entrance would be swept down too. In silence we approached the edge of the great trough and stared down. There was a stratum of black granite, fortunately only about thirty feet thick at this point, and then the depths. A low roar reached our ears from far, far beneath us. A steady blast of ice-cold air fanned up against us. The professor threw down a large fragment of rock. Seconds elapsed, and we heard no splash. The unseen surface was too far below for the noise of the rock's fall to carry on up to us. The mystery of this ball of earth on which we live, murmured the professor. Here is this enormous underground body of water. We are far below sea level. Where, then, is it flowing? What does it empty into? Can it be that our planet is honeycombed with such hollows as this we are in, and is each inhabited by some form of life? He sighed and shook his head. The thought is too big. For if that were true, wouldn't the seas be drained from the surface of the earth, should an accidental passage be formed from the ocean bed down to a giant river as this beneath us? How little we know! The wild clamor of an alarm bell interrupted his musing. From all the city houses poured masses of people, to form in solid lines behind the large well. In addition to men, there were many women in those lines, tall and strong, ready to stand by their mates as long as life was left them. There were children, too, scarcely in their teens, prepared to fight for the existence of the race. Every able-bodied Zyobite was mustered against the cold-blooded things that pressed so near. The arms of these desperate fighters were pitiful compared to our own war weapons. With no need in the city for fighting engines, none had ever been developed. Now the best that could be had was a sort of axe, used for dissecting the moundfish, and various knives fashioned for peaceful purposes. Again the bell clambered forth a warning, this time twice repeated. Every hand grasped its weapon. Every eye went hopefully to the hole in the floor on which our immediate fate depended, then valiantly to the section of wall above it. This quavered perceptibly. A heavy pointed instrument broke through, was withdrawn, and a hissing stream of water spurted out. The Quabos were about to break in upon us. With a clash that made the solid rock tremble, a section of the wall collapsed. It was the top half of the end of the Quabos's tunnel. They had so wrought that the lower half stayed in place, a thing we did not have time to recognize as significant until later. A solid wall of water in which wreathed dozens of tentacled monsters was upon us, and we had time for nothing but action. The ditch had of necessity been placed directly under the Quabos's entrance. The first rush of water carried half over it. With it were borne scores of the cold-blooded invaders. In an instant we were standing knee-deep in a torrent that tore at our footing, while we hacked frantically with knives and axes at the slimy tentacles that reached up to drag us under. A soft, horrible mass swept against my legs. I was overthrown. A tentacle slithered round my neck and constricted viciously like a length of rotten cable. I sawed at it with the long notch blade I carried. Choking for air, I felt the pressure relax and scrambled to my knees. Two more tentacles went around me, one winding about my legs and the other crushing my waist. Two huge eyes glared fiendishly at me. I plunged the knife again and again into the barrel-shaped head. It did not bleed. A few drops of thin, yellowish liquid oozed from the wounds, but aside from this my slashing seemed to make no impression. In a frenzy I defended myself against the nightmare head that was winding surely toward me. 
Meanwhile I devoted every energy to keeping on my feet, if I ever went under again. It seemed to me that the creature was weakening. With redoubled fury I hacked at the spidery shape, and gradually, when it seemed as though I could not withstand its weight and crushing tentacles another second, it slipped away and floated off on the shallow roaring rapids. For a moment I stood there, catching my breath and regaining my strength. Shifting, terrible scenes flashed before my eyes. A tall zyobite and an almost equally stalwart woman were both caught by one gigantic quabo, which had a tentacle around the throat of each. The man and woman were chopping at the vicious, gruesome head. One of the thing's eyes was gashed across, giving it a fearsome blind appearance. It heaved convulsively, and the three struggling figures toppled into the water and were swirled away. The professor was almost buried by a quabo that had all four of its tentacles wound about him. As methodically as though he were in a laboratory dissecting room, he was cutting the slippery lengths away, one by one, till the fourth parted and left him free. A giant zyobite was struggling with two of the monsters. He had an axe in each hand, and was whirling them with such strength and rapidity that they formed flashing circles of light over his head. But he was torn down at last and borne off by the almost undiminished flood that gushed from the tunnel. And now, without warning, a heavy soft body flung against my back, and the accident most to be dreaded in the melee occurred. I was knocked off my feet. My head was pressed under the water. On my chest was a mass that was yielding but immovable, soft but terribly strong. Animated, firm jelly. I had no chance to use my knife. My arms were held powerless against my sides. Water filled my nose and mouth. I strangled for breath, heaving at the implacable weight that pinned me helpless. Bright spots swirled before my eyes. There was a roaring in my ears. My lungs felt as though filled with molten lead. I was drowning. Vaguely I felt the pressure loosen at last. An arm, with good solid flesh and bone in it, slipped under my shoulders and dragged me up into the air. "'Don't you know? Can't drown a fish, holding it under water,' panted a voice. I opened my eyes and saw Stanley, his face pale with the thrill of battle, his chin jutting forward in a berserk line, his eyes snapping with eager, wary fires. I grinned up at him, and he slapped me on the back, almost completing the choking process started by the salt water I'd inhaled. "'That's better. Now, at it again.' I don't remember the rest of the tumult. The air seemed filled with loathsome tentacles and bright metal blades. It was a confused eternity until the decreased volume of water in the tunnel gave us a respite. As the tunnel slowly emptied, the pressure dropped, and the incoming flood poured squarely into the trough instead of half over it. From that moment there was very little more for us to do. Our little army, with about a fourth of its number gone, had only to guard the ditch and see that none of the quabos caught the edges as they hurtled out of their passage. For perhaps ten minutes longer the water poured from the break in the wall, with now and then a doomed quabo that goggled horribly at us as it was dashed down the hole in the floor to whatever awesome depths were beneath. Then the flow ceased. The last oleogenous corpse was pushed over the edge, and the city, save from an ankle-deep sheet of water that was rapidly draining out the vents in the streets, presented its former appearance. The Ziobites leaned wearily against convenient walls, and began telling themselves how fortunate they were to have been spared what seemed certain destruction. The professor didn't share in the general feeling of triumph. "'Don't be so childishly optimistic,' he snapped, as I began to congratulate him on the victory his ditch had given us. "'Our troubles aren't over yet. But we've proved that we can stand up to them in a hand-to-tentacle fight.' 
His thin, frosty smile appeared. One of those devils normally is stronger than any three men. The only reason all of us weren't destroyed at once is that they were slowly suffocating as they fought. The foot and a half of water we were in wasn't enough to let their gills function properly. Now if they were able to stand right up to us and not be handicapped by a lack of water to breathe, I wonder, is that part of their plan? Is there any way they could manage? But, Professor, I argued, it's all over, isn't it? The tunnel is emptied, and all the Quabos are. The tunnel isn't emptied. It's only half emptied. I'll show you. He called Stanley, and the three of us went to the break. See, the Professor pointed out to us as we approached the jagged hole. The Quabos only drilled through the top half of their tunnel ending. That means that the tunnel still has about four feet of water in it, enough to accommodate a great many of the monsters. There may be four or five hundred of them left in there, possibly more. We can expect renewed hostilities at any time. But won't it just be a repetition of the first battle? remonstrated Stanley. In the end they'll all be killed, or will drown for lack of water, as these first ones did. The professor shook his head. They're too clever to do that twice. The very fact that they kept half their number in reserve shows that they have some new trick to try. Otherwise they'd all have come at once in one supreme effort. He paced back and forth. They're ingenious, intelligent. They're fighting for their very existence. They must have figured out some way of breathing in air, some way of attacking us on a more even basis in case that first rush went wrong. What can it be? I think you're borrowing trouble before it is necessary, I began, smiling at his elaborate scientific pessimism. But I was interrupted by a startled shout from Stanley. Professor Martin, he cried, pointing to the tunnel mouth. Look! Like twin snakes crawling up to sun themselves, two tentacles had appeared over the rock rim. They hooked over the edge, and leisurely, with grim surety of invulnerability, the barrel-like head of a quabo balanced itself on the ledge and glared at us. For a moment we stared, paralyzed, at the thing, and during that moment it squatted there, as undistressed as though the air were its natural element, its gills flapping slowly up and down, supplying it with oxygen. The thing that held us rooted to the spot, with fearful amazement, was the fantastic device that permitted it to be almost as much at home in air as in water. Over the great, globular head was set an oval glass shell. This was filled with water. A flexible metal tube hung down from the rear. Evidently it carried a constant stream of fresh water. As we gazed we saw intermittent trickles emerging from the bottom of the crystalline case. Point for point, the creature's equipment was the same as diving equipment used by men, only it was exactly opposite in function. A helmet that enabled a fish to breathe in air, instead of a helmet to allow a man to breathe in water. Stanley was the first of us to recover from the shock of this spectacle. He faced about and raised his voice in shouts of warning to the resting Ziobites. For other glass-encased monsters had appeared beside the first now. One by one, in single file, like a line of enormous marching insects, they crawled down the wall and humped along on their tentacles, around the ditch, and toward us. The deadly infallibility of that second attack. The Quabos advanced on us like armored tanks bearing down on defenseless savages. Their glass helmets, in addition to containing water for their breathing, protected them from our knives and axes. We were utterly helpless against them. They marched in ranks about twenty yards apart each rank helping the one in front to carry the cumbersome water hoses which trailed back to the central water supply in the tunnel. Their movements were slow, 
weighted down as they were by the great glass helmets, but they were appallingly sure. We could not even retard their advance, let alone stop it. Here were no suffocating, faltering creatures. Here were beings possessed of their full vigor, each one equal to three of us, even as the professor had conjectured. Their only weak points were their tentacles, which trailed outside the glass cases. But these they kept coiled close, so that to reach them and hack at them we had to step within range of their terrific clutches. The Ziobites fought with the valor of despair added to their inherent noble bravery. Man after man closed with the monstrous armored things, only to be seized and crushed by the weaving tentacles. Occasionally a terrific blow with an axe would crack one of the glass helmets. Then the denuded Quabo would flounder convulsively in the air till it drowned. But there were all too few of these individual victories. The main body of the Quabos, rank upon rank, dragging their water hose behind them, came on with the steadiness of a machine. End of section 16